We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are here with an author that I am a longtime fan of. He is a formerly a senior writer for 538.com, often covering chess and other games. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Texas at Austin with an emphasis on game theory. He was a 2020 Neiman Fellow where he studied artificial intelligence at Harvard University. And he's out, I think it will be today when this podcast comes out certainly in this general time frame, with a new book called Seven Games, A Human History. It covers the history and current competitive context of the games, checkers, backgammon, go, poker, scrabble, bridge, and yes, chess. And it places a special emphasis on how AI is changing these games. And I greatly enjoyed this book, as I do all of our guests, uh, chess writing in particular. So excited to welcome Oliver Rader to the show. Oliver, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and congrats on the new book. We're recording uh, a couple weeks in advance, so probably the uh, maelstrom of um, public talks and podcast interviews hasn't started yet. So I'm I'm excited to get you first. And uh, again, I I always enjoy your writing, and the book is fantastic. So thanks. I'm glad you took the time to write it. 
Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm very pleased to to kick off the Maelstrom on uh, on the chess podcast. That's perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, glad to hear it. Um, so I thought obviously we'll be getting into your relationship with chess, which just as a longtime five thirty eight reader, I've often wondered about just reading, and I'm sure I'm not uh, the only one. But I thought it might be better, given that this is a book about seven different games, to talk sort of in a broader context at um, about why people still play games, why there's a chess, why I'm able to do a chess podcast, you know, and, you know, 10,000 people or whatever, listen every week. Like, why, why do these habits endure? Um, and I, I enjoyed the quote that you had in the book that, that one of the reasons people enjoy games is the, the voluntary attempt to overcome necessary obstacles from uh, Bernard Suits. But I was curious how you contextualize uh, the continued popularity of both chess, but also the other games you cover and games more generally. So I think games play a very interesting and very multifaceted role for us humans. I mean, the, simple, the simplest reason that they endure is, is that they're fun. Archaeologists discover games from thousands and thousands of years ago. And, you know, a, a simple reason that we might have played games in ancient times is, well, there wasn't that much to do, right? We needed to, we needed to pass the time. And the, the philologist Irving Finkel, who spent his career studying games, once told the New Yorker that there were long periods of time when there was bugger all to do in the right. ancient world. And, and this might be... This is, a, I think, maybe a sufficient explanation for, for why there were games. But I think the other sort of interesting theory about, about games' importance and, and games' persistence has to do with uh, human agency, this idea that games are an art, an art form, and specifically they're the art form that captures human agency, whereas painting captures the visual world and, and music captures the, the heard world, games capture the world of sort of action and decision. And I think games are, are fun, but they're also practice, right? They're, they're distilled sort of very small crystallized models of, of aspects of the real world. And humans sort of crave this practice and, and this exercising of, of, of agency and and why chess in particular and why the other games in the book in particular have have survived i think is a question of sort of evolution the sort of the darwinian sort of survival of the fittest there's a, a bit in the book about like well why is you know uh why is this statue in the louvre or why is that painting in the met it's well th these are these are the works of art that that survived and, you know, chess and, and backgammon are thousands of years old. And, and these are the, the games that survived. Yeah. And doing quite well in the case of chess um, and some of the other games you mentioned. So you meant you go through your background with with all of these games in, in the book. I'm curious in terms of the book's evolution, Oliver, like, did you know it was going to be those seven games right away? Or how did you pick? Uh, because there's there's so many um, games with with long legacies and uh, you can't write about them all. Yeah, that's a great question. It was um, it was not obvious from the beginning, um, which what the games that I sort of go into in depth um, would be. There sort of a few criteria emerged. I wanted games that that were well known or at least fairly well-known um, games that had sort of active competitive scenes and, and active subcultures 
um, and games that had been paid serious attention to by, by computer scientists, because I knew that I wanted to tell this sort of dual story, uh, the importance of games to humans and human culture on the one hand, and the importance of games to the development of technology and specifically AI on the other hand, and this sort of intertwining story, because of course the development of technology is a human story too. We shouldn't forget that. And I'm, I, I'm not arguing by picking these seven games that these are the only ones that might meet those criteria, but they were ones that I thought obviously met the criteria and that, and that I found um, to be compelling. Yeah, I found them uh, quite compelling myself. Um, the, I mean, I, I have passing levels of familiarity, I mean, different levels of familiarity with with all of the games. What I mean, so I know you're quite a good Scrabble player. You obviously know your way around a chessboard from your writing on 538. Was there any game out of the seven that you felt like you were coming into relatively cold? Yeah, there were a couple, to be honest. Um, the two that I was probably least familiar with as a player were Backgammon and Bridge. And after after reporting the chapter on Backgammon, I became a completely insatiable Backgammon addict. So I don't know why I hadn't played Backgammon um, before re- reporting the book, but I think it's an absolutely wonderful game. Bridge... I, bridge is, is tough. A bridge, I think even even Bridge's biggest fans will admit that the learning curve is extremely high for a variety of reasons. Um, you can you know you can play something that looks like chess after sort of a few minutes of instruction. You you can't play something that looks like Bridge after a, a few minutes of instruction. Plus, you need twice as many people and so on. So I, I grew up playing a lot of trick taking card games, uh, euchre, pinochle. Uh, but bridge never happened to be to be among those um, in my circles, so I had to do a lot of a lot of learning about about bridge. Yeah, bridge was a game. I, I probably a lot of people listening might have similar stories with at least one of these games. But it was a game where I was taught it once and loved it, played it a few times. But whether I don't know whether it's a good thing or not, but uh, my my exposure was limited from that point. And I think there's a there's a Games players generally are attracted to to multiple games. I mean, I certainly like when I was reading about Go, Oliver. I was, um, and and you know, I've seen the AlphaGo movie, but I've never played the game. But it just sounded so fascinating. Um, what's your experience with Go? I've played a lot of very very terrible Go. That's my experience <laughs> with it. Um, you, I, I played a ton against my computer. Of course, this is something I did with with um, every game in the book was to, as I write a lot about this sort of superhuman AI players, I wanted to know like, what does it feel like to sort of play these superhuman players? So I I played a lot against my computer, taught a few friends, had a few friends who were good players. Um, So my experience is playing some of the worst go that's ever been played by, (laughs) by humans, but it is, I think a very unique experience uh, among in my, at least in my own personal game playing experience, just as I write about in the book, the rule, it's so incredibly simple in, in one sense, but so incredibly, unbelievably complicated in another. And, and I found it sort of a, enough rewarding enough just to kind of get lost in that and, and, and have very little idea what I was doing, which I think is the sign of a good game. If you can be very bad at it and still enjoy it, I think that's a success of, of game design. 
Yeah, I agree. And I wonder about that because obviously here on Perpetual Chess, um, our common theme is everyone wants to get better, myself included. You know, there's seemingly infinite knowledge. I mean, and if you look at the gap, as you discuss in your book, of course, between the strongest computers and Magnus Carlsen, even that gap is immense. So there's just so much for us common folk to learn. So I'm curious, like, when you play these games, how you're able to balance sort of a, a drive to know more versus just enjoying them. Yeah, for me, the the game I'm best at in the book, for example, is Scrabble. And getting getting good at Scrabble is, is a, a sort of unique, I think, process. Um, the most important thing, obviously, in getting good at Scrabble is learning the words that are in the Scrabble dictionary. But the words in the Scrabble dictionary isn't really a dictionary in the sense of like you use it to look stuff up or to learn about usage. The, the dictionary is essentially the rule book. And, you know, to you're by training for Scrabble, you're learning all of Scrabble's rules, of which there are 150,000. And there's more to it than that. But, you know, learning the rules is, is the most important part of getting good at Scrabble, which is which is not true about chess, for example. And I found, I found this process of learning the rules to be sort of a meditative process. And I think <laughs> a lot of people might, fi- might call it boring. Um, that's another word for it. But <laughs> yeah, I, I spent, I don't know, a few years in grad school learning, learning Scrabble words. Probably. So basically, you're just when you say learn the rules, as you said, you're you're just meaning memorizing word lists, basically. Yeah, that's right. And the, there's all kinds of ways to to make this process more efficient, uh, to sort of learn the words in the right order, um, based on sort of the probability that they will appear in a game and their usefulness if you know them versus if you don't know them, and so on. But yeah, essentially, uh, digital flashcards of of a hundred thousand words. So in in grad school, what sort of motivated me to get good at Scrabble was that I had made a lot of friends in the Austin Scrabble Club and there's a very strong Scrabble scene in Texas. And, you know, essentially it was uh, embarrassment avoidance. I I wanted to be able to compete with with these strong players. And and once you do, as I'm I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, who are chess players can, can relate to, once you start to sort of see yourself improve, it's it's a positive feedback loop and and it can be really addicting. And once you see that you can get better, you want to get even better. Yeah. And Oliver, I want to follow up a little on what you said about uh, the different methods for learning, because here uh, chess obviously is um, especially in the wake of Queens Gambit, it's kind of having a moment. It's um, uh, gained a lot of popularity in the past uh, two years or so, but there's also been an explosion in the learning tools. And obviously the the AI perspective you write about, a lot of it is informed from sort of the top level of these games, like how much is it pushing the boundaries? But um, a lot of the uh, the learning tools, like, uh, you know, sponsors of the pod Chessable, which uses space repetition, which sounds like something uh, similar to what you're talking about with the words list from Scrabble. And of course, there's all these drills that you can practice online and uh, the tactics trainers. So basically, everything's being optimized and people are getting better at chess faster than ever before. So I'm curious if you could riff on a Scrabble, but B, any of the other games you wrote about and sort of how the, the learning tools have, have developed uh, in, with those games. 
Yeah, I think that the phenomenon you're describing there in chess is is universal, at least among the games I discuss in my book, this idea of sort of democratizing knowledge for one thing and increasing the speed of its dissemination. So, I mean, I think Scrabble is a great other, a great second example, which is, you know, if you started playing in the early days of the competitive Scrabble scene, say late seventies or eighties, I mean, how do you study words? You, you write them down after like looking through the dictionary, right? There's no, there's not yet any digitized word list. Um, and sort of the strength of a Scrabble player was determined in large part by his or her willingness to do manual labor, copying words out of the dictionary. And nowadays, you're exactly right, this idea of sort of the Leitner card box system and how do I properly space, you know, a word that I didn't know a few days ago, the computer automatically shows it to me again. This idea of studying the words in the proper order uh, words you're likely to see given the distribution of the tiles in a Scrabble bag, you know, to take to take an extreme example, like the word pizzazz, P-I-Z-Z-A-Z-Z. You don't need to learn that word because you're literally never going to be able to play it in Scrabble. Huh. It's a word, sure. But whereas, you know, aneroid um, is the most common seven letter word that can emerge from the bag. And that's a word that you really ought to make sure that you know, and obviously the computer can can sort of present this to you in in that efficient order with with very little work on its part. Um, I think you know lots of lots of games in the book have a very similar phenomenon. Another example is backgammon. So the way that strong backgammon players would get good in backgammon's heyday, which was the seventies, there was sort of this enormous backgammon boom was doing something they called rollouts. So backgammon is um, a a dice-based game where you move checkers around a track based on your roll of the dice. So players would sit down, roll the dice, move the checkers, put the position back, roll the dice again, and do this over and over and over to try to analyze the position, spending, you know, days maybe um, doing, doing these manual rollouts. And now we still do rollouts. It's just the computer does them in milliseconds and thousands and thousands of times. Um, so that's that's another example. And I think that the other interesting part of that question is sort of what happens to the games when getting good at them becomes easier. Not easy, of course, but, but easier. Um, one example, I'll stick with backgammon. Backgammon used to be a gambling game, a hustler's game. Uh, you know, you go to a tournament and the real action is the side action, right? The gambling in the hotel bar or, or whatever. But the computer sort of erodes this part of the game, right? Because the computer tells you, as it does in chess, tells you pretty precisely how good or bad you are at the game. And in backgammon, before the computer, maybe you think, oh, I'm pretty good at this game. I'm going right. to gamble on it. But now, at least speaking only for myself, the computer tells me, eh, you're not that good at backgammon. And sort of, it sort of erodes this, um, this delusion that, that maybe once flourished in, in games of chess. And I think this sort of second-order impact of, of learning tools is really interesting and really um, diverse, has very diverse impacts uh, across games.
Well said. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I mean, in in one sense, it's it can make it more enjoyable in many cases. But I also uh, found it interesting that you said that when you got good at Scrabble, in many ways, it, it ruined the game for you. Um, and that's something I, I certainly would not say chess has been ruined for me. But I've said in the past, um, there is a purity when you're learning a game on your own that goes away when you discover, oh, you know, this is a, these are well-trodden paths and I know nothing. So uh, could you could you describe that experience in, in Scrabble a bit, Oliver? Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't play Scrabble with my friends or family anymore. I, it's just it's not enjoyable for for any party involved. I, I, the the reason is is fairly simple: is that just I am an idiot and spent thousands of hours studying <laughs> obscure words, which you know then to the sort of seasoned Scrabble player becomes second nature, and one doesn't think about it at all if you play the word say a a or AI, or XU, or any of these sort of um, Scrabble mainstays. Uh, But if I play them against, say, my mom, my mom is going to sort of recoil. And uh, I think, I'm sure this is part of this, parts of this are true in chess, but in Scrabble, I think there's sort of, um, it's potent because most people think, that they have a fairly good vocabulary, I think, by default, right? <laughs> um, like, I, you know, this is a language I've been speaking my entire life. Certainly, I know most of the words in this language, and I've never heard of that word that you just played in Scrabble. Therefore, something fishy is going on. But, you know, if as you get good at Scrabble, of course, um, you, you stop thinking about this and you realize that, in fact, there are just many, many, many words that are, for the most part, latent in dictionaries and and very rarely used in the quote unquote real world. Um, But I think that's one of the beautiful things about Scrabble is um, Stefan Fatsis, who wrote uh, Word Freak, a great book about Scrabble, sort of talks about this idea that Scrabble unlocks these words that would that would otherwise uh, never see the light of day. So, yeah, it's it's on the one hand, getting getting good at a game is is rewarding. But on the other hand, it sort of um, makes it difficult to to play with other beginners. Yeah. And for context, we should say, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're one of the top few hundred Scrabble players in, in North America, correct? Uh, I, yeah, I think I haven't, I haven't played a lot of tournaments. So technically my rating, I may be uh, an inactive player. But yes, once upon a time, I was in the top 200 or so. Uh, but don't be too impressed by that. I, I don't know. That's uh, damning with faint praise. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. Because I, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I think Scrabble, it's a certain subset of people that feel like they'll be good at it. But amongst those, they tend to be pretty, pretty cerebral types that, uh, that would certainly be impressed with that. Um, so I want to dig deeper on chess, Oliver. But first, we're going to take, take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is proud, as always, to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Of course, Chessable is constantly dropping new courses. Some of their latest include Keep It Simple for Black by I am Christoph Selecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained. It gives an entire repertoire for black no matter what you face, and Christoph is always thorough, yet not 
overloading you with variations. There is also a brand new Lifetime Repertoires Berlin defense from former U.S. champion GM Sam Shanklin. I hate playing against the Berlin, so I'd rather you not get that one. But hey, if you're looking to learn it, of course, Sam Shanklin does not mess around with his course offerings. And of course, whatever you choose to study on Chessable, you can utilize their proprietary move trainer technology to help you remember the lines you learn. So be sure, as always, to go to chessable.com and take a look at what's new. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back, and we're ready to to dig into the chess section of the book, my favorite section, of course, although I have to admit, the book did make me want to be a Go player, so uh, <laughs> my wife's going to have to keep an eye on that. Um, but Oliver, you give great historical pres- perspective on chess, as well as sort of the modern AI landscape, but I thought maybe you could could read a quote that you shared about, or, sorry, that, that I picked out about uh, chess's um, enduring popularity. Are you ready to uh, to read that? Yeah, happy to. The best theories place chess's origins in India around 1500 years ago, where it was called Chaturanga and had likely been invented as a miniaturized military exercise. The pieces, for example, comport with elements of the actual Indian army of the day, the all-important Raja or king, the chariot or modern-day rook, and the elephant or modern-day bishop. While a debate continues to simmer over the game's precise genesis, some researchers contend that chess did not evolve from ancient games over decades and centuries, as many others had. Rather, it was invented at some some single moment in time by some singular genius. Arguably, the really striking feature in the long development of chess is its subsequent triumph in the Darwinian competitive process which has kept some games alive while driving others into disuse and even obliteration from the records, writes the historian Richard Eels. Chess was the fittest game, in other words, and it survived. Yeah, I mean, again, of course I'm biased, but obviously that quote really resonated with me. And you might, Oliver, be able to give a a less biased perspective. So what do you think it is about chess in particular where it's taught in all these school programs, not to mention, you know, uh, becoming viewed more and more on Twitch and has has endured through these centuries? I think the simple answer is replayability. I think the idea that there are maybe not literally countless, but effectively countless games of chess one could play. And, you know, I, I'm always struck by this when I cover the World Championship, uh, sort of looking at the games that are played in the World Championship compared to the databases. And it, it, it doesn't always take that many moves to get out of the known database, right? Eight moves, 10 moves, sometimes, whatever it is. And I find that, like, absolutely flabbergasting um, that, you know, we've been playing chess and, and really good chess for, for quite a long time. So re- replayability, I think, is, is the simplest reason. I mean, that's that's why it, you know, 
grasps generation after generation. One is I, another reason is I think the complexity is pitched to this like really remarkably well-tuned level where on the one hand, chess is very accessible. Um, you can teach it to school children. You can teach it to, you can teach it to anyone, the basics, I mean, but you can sort of dive as deeply as, as you'd like into the game. And the idea of the complexity being sort of pitch perfect, I think shows up when we look at computers and sort of how computers have, have grappled with the game and that, there was a moment in time or maybe say roughly a, a decade in time where humans and computers were basically the same strength. And by humans, I mean the top humans were basically the same strength at chess. And, and I find that to be pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, the famous Kasparov deep blue matches were, were very closely fought and, and so on. So this idea that, you know, one species and the, the machines that that species creates were kind of fighting on level terms, uh, I find interesting. And, you know, I'm not sure how much uh, convincing your listeners really need about how great, <laughs> how great chess is. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. Um, but I, I think those, I think those um, are the two things that, that come to mind. Yeah, that makes sense. I, and I, I agree. Our listeners probably don't need convincing, but they might need context because, you know, for someone like me, like I'm so deep in it that it's only something like reading your book that makes me think more broadly about like, you know, I mean, I think in the case of checkers, the, it might be fairly obvious. I mean, you know, shout out to checkers. Great game. But, um, you know, you can see why chess would, would be more popular now but some of the other games again go in particular i just i read it and i thought this seems amazing like why isn't it more popular in the west yeah i i think i think there's another probably valid but probably disappointing explanation which is like let's say for the sake of argument that chess is the most popular game at least in the west i don't know that that's true i'm not sure how you measure it but just say i mean some game has to occupy that spot right Right. And sort of back to the sort of evolutionary idea we were talking about, you know, I, some game has to, has to occupy that spot. Chess is a pretty good game. It happened to. Right. I, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to anger uh, the, your listeners, Ben, but you know, a part of it could have just been good luck. Yeah. That, it's like that, the, that, the pushback against the great man theory of history. It's not, not so much that the game's amazing. It's just right place, right time. That's right. Yeah. It was right place, right time and, and good enough. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, and there are, again, I mean, I'm a former poker pro, so obviously I enjoyed the, the poker section as, as well. And there are many great games and different, you know, again, I think there's a lot of commonality in terms of the people drawn to them, but you know, they check different boxes that make you decide this is the one I'm going to spend countless hours on. Speaking of which, Oliver, I, I do think it would be helpful because I, again, I've been reading you for years on 538 and I've always been impressed in your chess coverage of, uh, you know, a like the, the breadth of your knowledge, but B how you're still able to present it to what's primarily going to be a, a non chess audience. So I, I am curious about, I mean, an, I read it in the book, of course, but maybe you could tell our listeners about your own chess story briefly. Sure. Um, and thank you for saying that. Um, I Games were my family's 
love language growing up. I mean, games were were basically all we did together, and um, chess was chess was one of those. And I my my first memories in chess were were playing against my grandfather, um, and he was a very strong player. At least he, he seemed like a very strong player to me when I was a kid. Uh, but but more than that, my grandfather had a very strict policy of never letting kids win, which is a policy that in retrospect, I agree with and understand uh, why he held that policy. So I, my earliest memories are sort of beating my head against the wall, playing my grandpa over and over and over and, and losing. Um, but then of course, eventually I beat him and it was, it was a thrill. It was, you know, one of the maybe two highlights of my, of my chess career. <laughs> and, and I sort of went through, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I sort of went through phases with chess when, when I was younger. Um, the first was, I, I, most of the time I was happy to lose because there was just sort of so much to explore so much that was sort of going on in the game. You know, do I, what piece do I move first? Uh, you know, right from the beginning, there's this really interesting question that, you know, chess players are still grappling with in some ways. Like, and, you know, if do I, you know, what's castling all about? Oh, now I finally understand. And, and sort of this sort of very messy sort of childlike exploration. Um, and that, that, that was enough to sort of grip me for, for a few years. And then I became... You know, I was a very nerdish, uh, bookish kid, um, and I became completely fascinated with with chess books. And I was completely obsessed with um, like the modern opening theory, uh, chess chess opening books. These like encyclopedic um, volumes that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. And I would read them, and and I wouldn't really have any idea, sort of what they were talking about, like practically. And it's not as though like I remembered some deep variation and would play it, but I was just, I was so fascinated that someone had compiled this. So that those books were, were my favorite, like right alongside like the baseball encyclopedia that I would leaf through and say, like, I can't believe they have this guy's batting average from, you know, 1895 or, or whatever. And and it, like I said, that didn't make me a good player <laughs> at all. Um, so, that was, but the sort of second phase was just being fascinated by the sort of human compiled knowledge about this game. I was so thrilled that the world was a place where where someone could could put this together. And then the sort of third phase, which I would say that I, I'm still in is as just a sort of appreciator of, of good play. Like I'm never going to be a good player, uh, a strong player, but I, I do think that I'm able to sort of appreciate what good players do and hopefully sort of give a flavor of that to a broad audience. Um, you know, and I'm never, I'm never going to be able to, to replace a sort of, grandmaster's analysis of a game for people who really want to understand, you know, why this, why Magnus made this move or Jan made that move or whatever in the world championship. But I hope, I hope I can give a taste of why the game played at its highest levels is so interesting. And I'd like to think that this could, this could bring some people into the game or back into the game. And, and you know, my favorite, 
my favorite feedback that I get when I, when I write about the world championship is people saying like, oh, I started playing chess after or started playing chess again a- after reading your pieces about the world championship. But to me, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge success. So um, yeah, I, I think I peaked in fourth grade when I won my <laughs> elementary school uh, championship, basically by memorizing the uh, scholars mate and hoping uh, yeah. would fall yeah. into that, that. That's about the extent of my technical Chess yeah, ability. the scholars mate was gave you some good runway in those days. It's uh, it's a little bit yeah, harder. You'd, win, you'd win like 65 percent <laughs> of the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, you're you're very modest about your chess skills, but again, in your writing, your knowledge of chess is quite um, quite evident. Um, do you mind saying for context what your sort of online rating is generally? Uh, I when I play online, I play very fast games. Why do I do this? Because <laughs> I can sort of get over the previous blunders more quickly. Right. And um, I, to be honest, I don't know, 1600. Something okay. Like so that. yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're a solid, you're a solid player. I mean, and that's what I would have guessed. I mean, you're, you're so, again, so modest about your writing, but your, un- your understanding of chess is clear in, in your writing. And I'm curious, Oliver, so writing about something like the world championship, you're going to have, as you say, sort of casual chess fans and new chess fans reading, but you're also widely followed by like uh, grandmasters and, and chess professionals. And I know that, you know, many appreciate the work you've mentioned that, that you help popularize chess. So I'm curious when, when the world champions chippers or an event like that is taking place what's your preferred method of consumption are you watching broadcasts do you have the engine running uh stuff like that yeah i i try to throw the kitchen sink at it basically and i should say um that the the grandmasters who 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 do follow me i mean i need to thank them too because you know i I try to reach out to, to strong players um, to, to kind of get their take on what's going on too. So um, I, I want to thank actually good chess players for, for agreeing <laughs> to talk to me uh, off the bat. So yeah, I, I live in uh, New York city. And so when, when the match was in New York, of course I was there every day. Um, uh, just sort of getting, getting the, the physical layout, setting, setting the scene that way. But the, the last two have been abroad. So yeah, I, I have um, a couple monitors and, and I set up sort of everything I can. I have uh, sort of the three, three of the sort of main broadcasts. I have uh, the chess-based database um, that I sort of um, try, to, try to find the position in. Uh, I have the engine running. I, I, can't, I can't deny that I have, I have the engine running um, and, uh, and my story that, you know, these, we try to, try to write these as quickly as possible um, to, to keep them, to keep them newsy. So it's really, it's sort of a, a hectic time when, when the game is being played. Um, but, uh, yeah, I try to try to take in as much as I can Twitter. And there's a lot of really great, um, chess, oh, a lot of really terrible chess <laughs> stuff too, but, but a lot, to be honest, a lot of really great, um, uh, chess folks on, on Twitter, which I'm sure your audience m- maybe, um, follows or, or is themselves. Um, but yeah, a sort of um, uh, ecumenical—I don't know—a sort of a broad-based approach to um, to consumption. Yeah, and a, a serious serious pursuit of uh, chess truth, which is <laughs> which is um, 
Appreciate it. And uh, Oliver, what about, um, well, I have two follow-ups. So, uh, number one, so did did you expect Magnus to win? And I'm curious your sort of uh, perspective on like the elite chess landscape now generally. How how closely do you follow it in between world championships? Yeah, this 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 is a, a layman's uh, view of, of things, but I, I found the world championship fascinating. Right, it was this this uh, tale of two cities kind of thing. I mean, we had some of the most accurate games ever played in a world championship with you know these centi pawn losses, basically indistinguishable from zero kind of thing, and then we had what. We had the crazy game six, uh, but then we had these sort of inexplicable blunders from from Jan in the other games, and and I, I've never, I, I haven't heard a sort of satisfying explanation for that. It might just be chess is chess is really hard. That might be the sort of best explanation. But I, did I expect Magnus to win? That was your actual question. I mean, yeah, h- how could you not? Yeah. I mean, just given given the empirical ranking system, which seems to be um, a fairly good representation for the most part of strength. How could you not? I, I would have liked the, the match to have gone the distance, uh, you know, if only for a sort of selfish reasons of, I, I really like, I really like following it and, and, and writing about it. Um, you know, I, I think Magnus's comments following the match um, uh, that suggesting that, that he might not play, um, they might not defend this title are, are interesting. Um, and I think, you know, we can talk more about that. I think, you know, and, and in some ways indirectly related to, to AI, right. I think, and as, and as AI has sort of infiltrated the championship match format and, and a story that obviously your listeners are very familiar with that, the, the preparation idea. And I don't know, I, I, I don't like to sort of speak, speak for these characters and in, in my stories and, and what Magnus is actually thinking, but the, that he's, I don't know, bored by, by, yeah. the, by the championship um, sort of grind. We will get back to our conversation with Oliver in a minute, but first we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Listeners, our friends at aimchess.com have a fun new feature that I want to tell you about. It is called the Aim Chess Recap. If you're familiar with Spotify Wrapped, it's basically the chess version of that, your chess year in review. They have a new design to make the user experience more fun, and they tell you all kinds of stats from your, from your year, the ones you might be used to, like how you do with certain openings, certain colors against who you played the most, how many minutes you played the total year, and then some fun stuff like the total amount of smothered mates you played, the number of en passants taken, uh, all of your missed mate and ones. Okay, maybe that one's not as fun. And if you see something you want to share, you can easily share it on social media. So that's called the Aim Chess Recap. Link is in the show description. It's free to check out. And then if you do decide to subscribe to Aim Chess, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. All right, let's head back to Perpetual Chess. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And to bring it back to to go, Oliver, because as you mentioned, Magnus um, may may not defend his his title, which you know, as like you, I could I could sit here an arm armchair quarterback, but I don't know what purpose that really serves. We just kind of have to wait and see and hope that he plays. But you know, we games give us agency, and he has more agency than anyone, so <laughs> it'll ultimately be up to him. But I was curious. Um, you mentioned sort of AI might have had an impact, and if correct me if I'm wrong, but Lisa Dole, the guy who and I probably mispronounced his name, the guy who lost to AlphaGo, he was so I guess. Uh, disheartened that that he quit um, Elite Go after that. Is that right? Yeah, he announced his retirement and basically told uh, the Korean press that he realized that there was an entity that he couldn't beat and that he was he was done playing the game at least publicly and, and professionally, which I, I found fascinating, of course, and and sad of of course and i I think i think one thing zooming out a little bit from go but i'll come back to it one thing that's interesting about ai and games is just how disparate and just how diverse its impacts are across games and across individual players of games and and i'd like to think this holds some lessons for ai more generally uh, its disparate impacts in in domains in the quote-unquote real world but for example, in, in chess, uh, I don't think Magnus or any grandmaster cares that Stockfish is a lot better than than him. You know, it's it's just sort of established fact and has been for what twenty five years. Um, and you know the the traditional like way to think about is like, you know, Usain Bolt or whatever, doesn't care that like a race car is faster than he is. Right. It's just kind of the state of the world. But, you know, then you get uh, cases like uh, Lee C. Dahl, who this, this fact really sort of bothers um, and sort of bothers to the extent of like not being interested in, in the game anymore. Um, so, yeah, again, I, it, can't can't speak for Lee Sidal, but you know there are there are many strong and many young Go players for whom this will just be the state of the world. Uh, who have grown up in the age of the superhuman computer, and you know I think one thing I, I try to stress in the book is that yeah these machines exist, but the human game is still very much accessible, right? Like I played a lot of very terrible Go and that's fine. And, you know, I had a great time doing it. I played a lot of terrible backgammon. I played a lot of terrible poker, which was more expensive than playing a lot of terrible (laughs) Go. But, you know, this idea, this idea of striving, of sort of, uh, learning something from from the beginning of being a beginner in a game, regardless of the strength of the top humans or the top machines, I think is is very, very important and, and one of the 
thing, one of the most important things that games can offer us is this chance to sort of be beginners at something. Yeah, well said. And just a, a quick uh, point to highlight on the Lisa Dole um, matter. It's true that, that you say chess players aren't bothered or they've, they've been through the phases of grief, at least, about <laughs> computers being better than them um, at, at chess. But I do think um, with Magnus, there's something about the, the memorization required um, that that depresses a certain strain of player. Like when I interviewed a legendary Dutch grandmaster, Jan Timman, who of course played for the world championship and was a top five player in the world for, for decades. He said, if, if he were coming up now, he wouldn't be a chess professional because he looked at it as sort of like an art, a way to express himself creatively. Whereas now it's becoming more, more like a science. Um, is, is that something you're seeing across sort of the game landscape, Oliver? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question and, and one I grapple with in in the book. Uh, I don't know that I that I have a sort of ever came to a clean answer. But yeah, this idea this idea of style, um, which you see in maybe every game. You certainly see it in chess. You see it in Scrabble. The style by style, I mean, so is is this player aggressive and offensive, or, or cautious and defensive? And you know, do they have tendencies? You see this in poker, of course, style, and this idea that perhaps the computer sort of dulls all of this style. Why? Well, because the computer shows you that X style or Y style is simply suboptimal. And you know maybe maybe poker is a pretty stark example of this. Yeah, yeah, that resonated um, in the book. And and this idea that and, and this this is oversimplifying it, but this is sort of the the dynamic. Once upon a time, humans sort of learned the game themselves and developed what they thought was the best way for themselves to play, which was colored with their own human whatever tendencies. But now we all look to the same entity, the computer, capital C, and we try to mimic it, They're thereby sort of draining some like blood from, from the game. I think this is the, the concern, or this is a concern, and maybe you, your guest talking about that, that the sort of art had been um, sort of dulled in some way. What do I think about this? I think, I think there's a lot to it. Um, and I think that, well, how to to, to to put myself in Magnus's shoes, what does he want? He wants, roughly speaking, for us to play faster games so that we can become more human and, and do less memorization. And this way of like injecting more humanness into the game. I guess I think I think two things. One is that it's impressive to see humans play any game as optimally as they play games these days to see these centipon losses near zero or error rates in backgammon near zero to see humans playing games so well regardless of the quote-unquote style that this exhibits is impressive. That's thing one. Thing two, as I kind of mentioned before, it's okay to not play optimally, to play 
to play with your friends, to be a what what they call a striving player, to sort of develop your own style and, and to figure the game out for yourself, I think is a completely valid path of gameplay. And so I think I think that is still available to f- to folks. The professional game, though, yeah, I, I I certainly understand the frustration or the um, people being dissuaded. Like I I sympathize I sympathize with that sentiment. And what's your semi outsider's perspective on these? Like on this podcast, there's sort of endless debates, and I, you mentioned in the book, you know, the possibility of something like chess nine sixty slash Fisher Random, where obviously Kramnik's been advocating for a chess game without castling, like. D- from from your perspective, looking at the broad historical sweep and looking at these other games, do you think that chess needs to be changed in the near future? I think I think one of the things that makes chess so sort of compelling and unique and sort of allows it to occupy this sort of cultural pinnacle as like the intellectual board game, quote unquote is that it's it's been the same for so long i think changing changing the underlying structure of the game with yeah fisher random or um no castles or or whatever, some some sort of very essential change to the structure of the game itself seems to me again underlined as an outsider to to be risky because I think, you know, you also want to keep the chess economy and ecosystem healthy, which I think does involve engaging and bringing in eventually outsiders. And to me, that it just seems confusing, frankly. Um, and, you know, we, we have this problem in Scrabble where there's all these different dictionaries um, that are used in diff- by different associations. And, and the, the game, it would be similar to playing chess 960 versus chess to use one Scrabble dictionary and the other. And I, I think we've seen pretty starkly in that game that it's, it's very unfriendly to, to beginners. Yeah. But I think there are way, there are much less uh, violent <laughs> ways to change chess. I think time con- time control. And obviously this, this is done. There's the, the rapid and blitz world championship and so on. But to me that, a change like, say, playing the world championship at, at shorter time controls, again, as an outsider, as a fan, I would be very happy to see that. Yeah. Um, I think I think it does um, introduce sort of uh, just base amount of excitement, right? Like, what was the most exciting game in the world championship game six by far. Why? Yeah. Because they were running out of time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They're like, like full stop. Like, of course there was wonderful chess being played. There were of course, whatever, two, three, four mistakes made before time control. But like, other than that, like wonderful chess, longest game in, in championship history and so on. But why was it exciting? Because they were running out of time. Yeah. Right. Like that's it. That's it. And, and I think, I don't know. Uh, you shouldn't ask me what I think the time control should be, but um, short seems fine and, and you can play a bunch of games and whatever. But I don't know how useful my opining on this is, but I I don't know that how explicit Magnus has been when he's talking about this, but that seems to be what he's sort of advocated for directly or indirectly. And to me, that seems very, that seems very natural. 
and and relatable, right? Like chess is essentially a, an esport now, right? On, on Twitch and YouTube and and so on, and and the big personalities are essentially esports personalities, and you know they're not streaming classical chess most of the time. They're streaming, you know, playing a bunch of of rapid games or like the the banter blitz type stuff and you know if the world championship sort of appeared in this format with which viewers were familiar my sort of outsider's take is is that that could that could make these sort of top level tournaments resonate in a lot more so obviously no matter what chess like elite chess format opinion is expressed. No one's going to agree 100%. But for the record, Oliver, I agree with you. Uh, last chess question, and then I just have one or two others and, and we'll get you out of here, is um, do you have time for chess as sort of a dilettante? Like, are you watching YouTube uh, instructional videos? Do you do puzzles? Like, or is it, you know, with all of your other professional responsibilities and stuff like that on the uh, on the back burner? I go through phases. I mean, I'm a, a serial obsessive, uh, S-E-R-I-A-L, not C-E-R-E-A-L. <laughs> right. I'm a serial obsessive. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I tend to cycle back and, um, and kind of go through very, very intense uh, phases of chess. Uh, study study is not quite the right word what i do is not is not quite study but yeah i i think puzzles are are great there's the you know nowadays these like puzzle sort of games where you whip through them as fast Mm -hmm. as you can um i like that but i tend to i tend to do that for you know a few minutes think that i've improved and then just hop on and play speed chess games and um and my my chess study is is very um, haphazard, but um, yeah, I, I do. I think that a lot of the video content is is pretty amazing. How um, people and oftentimes young people have sort of figured out a way to make this whatever two thousand year old game compelling uh, on the internet in 2022 i think all credit to them and um so yeah i i tend to uh i tend to when i'm into chess be completely into chess and when i'm not um not yeah i mean you've got six other games to think about so (laughs) (laughs) among your professional responsibilities um, and Oliver, one question I'm sure listeners will, will be wondering, I probably could have asked your publisher, but do you know if this will be on audiobook? It will be. There is a audiobook coming out the same day of publication, um, January 25th, narrated by a man called William Saris, who I don't know personally, but did a wonderful job. Um, yeah, available wherever audiobooks are available. Excellent. Yeah. And again, strongly recommend the book for, for listeners. Um, uh, I I enjoyed all seven sections, I have to say, as well as the epilogue. But, uh, you know, even if you just read the games that are your favorites, I think it's uh, definitely worthwhile picking it up. Oliver, um, do you have anything to to add before we let you before we let you go? No, I, I mean, you could keep me for another few hours if you wanted. I don't know if you can sell that that much uh, ad space or anything. But um, no, I, I think. I think one thing I, I, I hope that the book does and, and that I, 
I think you do, Ben, and that is, I think games are serious things. And I don't mean somber things, but I think games are serious things that deserve to be taken seriously. And I think they're often given sort of short shrift in the press and sort of treated as, as sort of quirky sideshows. And, and I, and I, I think game subcultures are some of the most interesting and, and rich subcultures out there. And, and I'm, I'm very happy and lucky to be able to write about them and, and yeah, to, to whatever extent I can sort of proselytize for games in general and chess in particular, um, I feel very happy to do that. Yeah. And we appreciate it in kind. And you, you mentioned in the epilogue. So when you are going to write about it, you, you say like, if you go to 538, they just say, go for it. There's, there's never any issue of like how many clicks it's getting or it being too narrow a subject or anything like that. No, not at all. Uh, that, that was never an issue at 538. I mean, 538, is a wonderful place for a lot of reasons. Um, and that's one of them. There, there was never any emphasis on uh, clicks uh, or anything like that. But even if there had been, it wouldn't have been a problem because it turns out lots of people like to read about chess. And, and I, think, um, I think there is a wide open lane uh, for writers and podcasters and so on who do good work on games. I think there's a very hungry, very hungry readership. Um, so no, there, there, there was never any issue. In fact, they were, they were very excited. And I was very excited when, when the world championship uh, rolls around every two or occasionally three uh, years. Great. And, and we know Oliver, you're no longer full-time at 538, but do you think you'll, you'll manage to cover future world championships? I certainly hope so. If they um, happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of reasons why things might not happen these days, but yes, if, if the world champion, yeah, of course, of course. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I, I think, and, and hope that 538 and other, uh, sort of, general interest national outlets sort of open their pages a bit uh, more to games. And I, I'm actually sort of cautiously optimistic that that, that will happen um, because sort of of the success we've seen in, in chess um, online. And, you know, if you look around like the ongoing Wordle phenomenon. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, crossword puzzles are are very, very cool things to do um and like game games had a moment games are having a moment which has been ongoing for uh i don't know at least a decade but i think accelerated by by the pandemic and you know i i hesitate to call anything about the pandemic a silver lining but i think games were an important sort of small dose of relief for folks and you know you can see this empirically in chess.com memberships and, and stuff like that but i think everyone can see it anecdotally i mean the amount of games that, that that i was playing with my family video and friends with with video chat to stay in touch with people so i think maybe um 
if we didn't know it already, we really realize sort of how important games are and can be. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic about, uh, about chess for sure, but about games sort of broadly, broadly speaking. Um, Excellent. And Oliver, since you said there was more time and I did realize I forgot a listener question. Can we, can we dive into that? Of course, please. Excellent. So this is from Alex Friedman. Thank you for supporting the pod, Alex. And he says, uh, some of the seven games like chess have complete information. Um, while others involve things hidden or have luck involved. How do you think this affects our enjoyment and philosophical or psychological approach to the games? That that's a fantastic question and one that's sort of a spine that runs through the book. These sort of basic characteristics of the game, of the games that I discuss, and the chapters are sort of ordered loosely with, with this these characteristics in mind. Sort of as you go on through the book, roughly speaking, you add features. So checkers, chess, and go. These games of no chance, perfect information. Then the backgammon chapter adds randomness and the poker chapter adds hidden information and the bridge chapter adds additional players. So you have this idea of partnerships. Um, so that, that was kind of the idea, rough idea of the organization of the book. I think in terms of appeal to players and philosophy, it probably comes, it's probably pretty, uh, pretty idiosyncratic to the player. So I think... Backgammon, for example, a game I've become recent, only recently become very, very deeply obsessed with and in love with, I think has this, this wonderful mix of luck and skill. And why do I like this so much? I like this so much because I can play with anyone, right? I can play and indeed have for money at odds played with a rank beginner and, and lost, and yeah, of course, like right after the game, I'm not happy I lost to a ranked beginner, but but this is a, a crucial a crucial feature of backgammon that you can sort of uh, get get people to play because they have a chance, um, and and I like that. I find it uh, democratic in, in nice. a way. Um, so I, but I th- I'm sure that there are that there are games players and perhaps chess players. Um, there's a lot of great um, chess stroke backgammon players out there, I'm sure. But there's probably a lot for whom the dice do not appeal um, at all. So I think, I think it's, it's interesting uh, when you get to the top levels uh, of games uh, with, of games of chance. So a recent phenomenon and philosophically, like how do we determine who the best backgammon player is because there's so much chance? Well, you can just play a ton of games and they do, but in, in high level backgammon, a common feature now is let's have the computer look at the play in the championship match, assign it what in chess would be sent upon loss or whatever in backgammon called error rate or performance rating. And not only do you have to win the backgammon game, but you have to be adjudged by the computer right. as having played better. Um, so this is really this is one way to sort of uh, eliminate, strip out the randomness. And I guess in chess, the correlation between sent upon loss and winning the game is probably incredibly tight, I would think. But in backgammon, the correlation between making errors and winning is is much looser, right? There's just a lot more a lot more noise. So I find that 
sort of philosophically uh, interesting. But I think I don't think there's one set of features that makes a good game. I think that's that's pretty clear when you look at good games. They're they're very different from each other. But I do think this sort of one thing that's important in every in every good game is having some feeling that you're in control, even if there's randomness. So in, in backgammon, yeah, you have to roll the dice every turn, but but you feel you feel like you're in control. Scrabble, same thing. You have to draw tiles out of a bag, but you still feel like you're in control. You're exercising agency. You're 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 doing you're doing something, mm-hmm. and you're having you're having an impact on the board. Excellent. Well, speaking of doing something, Oliver, thank you for for doing this podcast. We've uh, kept you a little longer than than planned, but I, it's been amazing. And again, the book is called Seven Games. Highly recommend it for all you games enthusiasts listening. Which, if if you're not one, I don't know why you're still listening. So, um, so th- <laughs> thank you, Oliver, and good luck with uh, all the uh, publication stuff. And we we look forward, hopefully, to your continued world championship coverage of continued world championships. Well, thank you so much, and uh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.